0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I want to ask you to do something very, very specific this morning. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 16 in the English Standard Version. Now if you do not have an English Standard Version of the Bible with you, there is one in the seat in front of you, or near you. In fact, I'd really like for you to have a printed copy today, so even if you like to use your phone or iPad or whatever, if you could grab one, that would be great. And it's so important to me that you have one, that if for some reason right now you do not and you need one, ask someone around you to get you one. There's lots of them. There we go. I'm good with it. For those of you who are visiting today, you've come on a weird Sunday, so I apologize to you in advance. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20 in the English Standard Version. That's page number 853 and those Bibles there in the seat in front of you. And I'm going to read them exactly as they are written here in this text. And I want you to notice all of the little details that I read to you, okay? Verses 9 to 20, we're going to read it, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. It begins with a note in brackets. That says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. And then you'll notice that before verse 9 is a set of double brackets. And then the text begins. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard it, heard that he was alive... And had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken away, or was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere where the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, and then noticed the final set of double brackets. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, I feel like the king there in Second Chronicles. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, and so we come this morning and just ask that you guide this time, Spirit, that you work through this time. This is an unusual Sunday for us, but I pray that through this you will help us to understand your Word, how you have communicated to us, how your Word is unending. It is eternal. All words of man pass away, but your words are eternal, And that at the end of all of this, our eyes would look to you with renewed faith and confidence for what we've seen this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, how are we doing today? Good? Good. Had a good week? Everybody happy to be here? Yeah, are you excited about today's sermon? You should be, because it's going to be a doozy. As uh, you can see here, we have got an issue in Mark. Um, Now, this is not an issue that has crept up on us in any way, shape, or form. This is an issue that is very well known and documented and has been for years. It's an issue that, as you can see here, our translators are aware of, that they have even noted for us in the text. Uh, It's an issue that every commentary that I have used and studied throughout Mark has been aware of and has addressed as well. And it's an issue which I and the elders were fully aware of when we chose to preach through Mark over three years ago now. So there is no sense in which today is coming as a shock to us, and yet possibly, for some of you, what we just read may be quite shocking, because you've never really thought through it or had to, to deal with this. As, as is now clearly obvious to us all, the ESV translators are telling us that in their estimation, based on what they know about the text, that Mark's gospel should end at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. They're saying to us that everything here in verses 9 to 20 is not a part, or is not actually a part of Mark's original text. And so by putting that little statement right there before verse 9, and then by putting everything here in verses 9 to 20 in double brackets, they're trying to just make it extremely clear to you that they believe that the gospel of Mark actually ends there at verse 8 and that everything after was written written and added at a later point. Now, for some of you, that's not going to be an issue at all because you've addressed this before, you've heard someone explain this to you before, uh, you've studied it out for yourself, and so for you, you're totally good. For others of you, though... You may not be in that camp. This might be the first time that you have ever even seen anything like this in the text. It's not actually the first time we've had to deal with this. There's one other place, actually. These are the two big places of the New Testament, and they're both out of the way after today. First John chapter 5 has an issue like this, and Mark 16 has an issue like this. So by the time we're done today, I'll be finished. In fact, the rest of my ministry, I can just ignore this issue altogether. Uh, but, but for some of us, we, we've been through it. Others of you have not. And so this may be a little troubling, uh, or you just may not have any framework by which to process this. And so my goal this morning is to try to help you, and this is a non-traditional Sunday in terms of a sermon. My, My goal this morning is to try to help you be able to understand the answers to three separate but related questions that hopefully will bring what we're seeing here at the beginning this morning that may be a little confusing into some clarity for you. So let me give you the three questions that we're going to ask and answer over the course of the next 40 to 150 minutes or so, okay? (laughs) Question number one is where did the Bible that you are holding in your hands right now, I mean the actual book that you've got in your hands right now, where did that come from? Number two what in the world is going on here in Mark chapter sixteen? And then question number three is, what does all of that do to our faith? Okay? So three questions. Where does the Bible that you're holding in your your lap, your hands right now come from? What's going on in Mark sixteen? What does this do to our faith? Understand the morning. Let's begin with question number one. Where did the Bible that you hold in your hands, in your lap this morning come from? Well, the easy answer, the, the Sunday school answer, would be to say that it came from, from God. And, of course, this is correct. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells us very clearly that all Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God, meaning that the words of Scripture are God's very words, as if he breathed them out of his own lips, so to speak. And so when we read the Bible, what we are reading are the very words of God to us. Another passage that teaches us the same idea... 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, where previously in 2 Peter 1, he's talking about the issue of prophecy, and he gets to verse 20, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, meaning it didn't come from man. Rather, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, again, The point he's getting across is that the words of Scripture are, in fact, God's words. And so, yes, as we think about where our Bibles came from, the easy answer and the correct answer is to say that they came from God. That that is 100% true. But how exactly did the words of God get from God's lips to your laps this morning? Okay, If we can think of it in that kind of a way, The answer to that question is slightly more involved. And to get to that answer, let me begin by asking you a very simple question. Did God originally speak and write the words of Scripture in English? Yes or no? No. Very good. Uh, What language is the Bible written in? Well, we know that the New Testament is written in Greek. Okay, so here's an example of some Greek text for you. And the Old Testament is written in what language? Okay, it's in Hebrew. So here's some example of Hebrew for you with a little bit of Aramaic uh, mixed in. I even brought some examples this morning. Uh, So here is a Greek New Testament. And as you can see, it's in Greek. Wow. And there's a piece of parchment that fell out. Leave that here for a moment. The Hebrew Bible is backwards. It opens this way because Hebrew is written opposite of English. And so you have to read this one backwards, this direction. But here's what it looks like, okay? Just making sure everybody understands the concept. So so if the New Testament is written in Greek and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, what does that mean for you? Well, it means that unless you can read what is on the screen behind me, What you need is a translation, right? You need someone to take that text and to translate it into a form that you can read, all right? Tuck that away for a moment. We'll come back to that later. Here's another question on our path to an answer. Then if the Old and New Testaments were written in Greek and Hebrew originally, do we have any of the original manuscripts of the scripture? I'm talking about, you know, the piece of paper that Mark put his hand on with his pen, and wrote. Do we have any of those original manuscripts? And the answer is no, to the best of our knowledge. On everything that we've seen, we do not have a single original manuscript of any of the 66 books of Scripture. Now, if I could pause for just a second, I will just make a personal observation. I think personally that God did that to protect us, now, for those of you in here who are from a Catholic background, you'll instantly relate to what I'm about to say, but for everybody else, just try to help, you know, hang, on, hang with me just for a moment. Particularly in the Catholic world, how many millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of people spend time every year worshiping relics, artifacts, objects of various sorts that are associated with whatever they think is associated with? You know, supposedly this church over here has a bone or a piece of hair of an apostle, and this church over here has a, has a piece of the cross. Someone once joked that if you assembled all of the pieces of the cross that are all around the world, you could build the Empire State Building with it, okay? It's that many. So the answer, the answer is millions upon millions of people do this. They worship all of this stuff instead of worshiping the God of creation, instead of worshiping Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had Paul's original letter to the Romans? or we had Mark's original copy of his gospel. Can you imagine the people who would flock to those places to worship those documents? I, I can't even begin to get my mind around what that would be. So personally, and I could be completely wrong about this, I think God removed the temptation from us. I think he took those things away so that people would not be tempted to worship those things. I think it would be far, far worse than what we see today. We do not have, to the best of our knowledge, any of the original manuscripts of the scriptures, they're all gone. So if we do not have the originals, and yet you have a Bible sitting in your lap this morning or holding that you're holding in your hands, the question is, how do we know what the original said? Well, one word, copies. And nine more words. Copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. In other words, we have lots and lots of and lots of copies of the Scriptures. And from this point on, I'm only going to be addressing the New Testament because Mark's in the New Testament, and so that's where we're focused this morning. But I want you to think about how we got all of these copies. And and to do this, you really have to put yourself back into that time and think about it from from what's happening then and from their perspective. Let's say that, uh, and I don't know where Mark originally sent his gospel, let's say he sent it to the city of Rome. So there's a church in Rome that's got a copy of Mark's original gospel. Well, one day, a believer from a church in Athens is in Rome, and he stops by the church there and goes by to the office, right, uh, there in Rome, and he's like, hey, you got anything here that we don't have? And they're like, yeah, we've got a a Mark's Gospel over here. He's like, oh, wow, I'd love to have a copy of that. Can I, do you mind if I copy it? And he's like, sure. So he sits down and he copies it. And then he takes it back to Athens, and one day in Athens, someone comes by the church office there and is like, hey, I'm from Ephesus, just want, do you got anything here? Yeah, we've got a copy of Mark's Gospel that I made out of Rome. Great, can I make a copy of that? Sure. Then one day someone from Philippi comes to Ephesus. Okay, you get this idea of what's going on here? As as the New Testament is being written, as it's going out, believers are taking what's being written and they're copying it and spreading it all around the known world. So this is a big reason why there are so many copies. The other big reason why there are so many copies is because the materials used in the ancient world just didn't last that long. Have you heard of papyrus? Papyrus is a document, is a material that you would write on. It's where we get paper from. You know what papyrus is? It's a plant. It's basically a a, a reed, a leaf, a stem that's been opened up. How how long do plants last when you write on them? (laughs) Not not super long. So in order to maintain something, you had to copy it and keep copying it and keep copying in order for it to go on and on and on. This is why we have so many copies. As of today... We know that there are around 6,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. 6,000. Now, granted, granted, as I say that, it's a huge number. Recognize they're not all the same. Some are very old. We're talking some from maybe the very early 1st century, definitely in the 2nd century. Um, all the way up until the 14, 1500s. You'll understand why that time period in a minute. Uh, some are more complete than others. A few of them, the really old ones, some of them are just like fragments. We're talking like little pieces of, of papyrus that survived with just a couple of verses or parts of verses written on them. Some of them contain almost the entire New Testament as you know it today. So, so these copies are all over the board. They're all over the place, all over Europe. And the Middle East, and Africa. And just to put this number in perspective, 6,000 copies, let's compare it to some other ancient works just to give you a baseline for understanding. Um, how many of you have heard of Homer, not Simpson, Homer's Iliad? Okay. Homer's Iliad. Has anyone read it in here? Besides, okay, it was like five of us. Great. Um, that's a pretty well-known ancient work. How many ancient copies of Homer's Iliad do you think that are out there today? Just give me one number. Not zero, 12, okay. Homer's Iliad is the one outside of the New Testament that they have the most copies, they found the most copies of any other work outside the New Testament. It comes in at a whopping 643, that's pretty good. About 10% of what we have in the New Testament. Now let's go to a work that you think would be much uh, better known. Let's talk about the works of Plato for a moment. Plato is of course very well known, his philosophy is still studied today, his works are read today by students all around the world. You would think we would know a lot about Plato, wouldn't you? About copies of ancient copies of his work. How many copies of Plato's works do you think are known of today? 200? Try seven. Let's think about Aristotle. Aristotle, again, a well known philosopher who has studied to this day. How many ancient copies of Aristotle's works are available today? Five. Now, I don't put this up here in order for us to put our faith in numbers. I just want you to understand the incredible difference that we're talking about when we talk about the New Testament versus any other ancient work of literature, anything. There's nothing even, even in the same ballpark, even in the same city, for goodness sake. I mean, they are vastly, vastly different. The New Testament is in a league of its own. And one last comment before I move on from this point I am only counting copies that are actually written in Greek. So if I were to take early translations of the Bible, because go back to our scenario, I'm in Rome, right? I've got Mark's gospel here, and someone shows up from Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, we'd really love a copy of that, but our people don't speak Greek. Can I copy this but translate it into Aramaic? Hell oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. Early translations of, of the scriptures, which help us understand what the original said, if I added all of those in, the number would be somewhere between twenty and 25,000. Again, we're not even in the same ballpark. Um, It's completely, completely in a league of its own. The point here is that God has overwhelmingly and convincingly preserved his word for us in all of these copies. In fact, I think it's fair to say that as you begin to study this topic out and understand it, you can really see both the sovereignty and power of God in all of this because nothing other than God could explain what we have today in the way that the scriptures have been preserved. So, let's review. God didn't write the New Testament in English. He wrote it in Greek. Uh, We don't have any of the original manuscripts that the apostles wrote. Instead, we have over 6,000 copies in Greek of the New Testament, plus a whole bunch more that our Bibles are based on. So, next question. You see what we're doing? We're just building, baby step at a time. Next question. Are all of those 6,000 copies 100% identical? And the answer to that question is no. And let me explain it to you like this, because I like illustrations. Let's say that I gave you a piece of paper, and I said, hey listen, I need 6,000 copies of this piece of paper. What would you do? Well, you would get in your car, and you would drive to Office Max or Office Depot, and you would go stand at the uh, copy machine for a half day and make 6,000 copies. And at the end of your half day standing in front of the copy machine, what would you have? You would have 6,000 identical copies of the piece of paper that I gave you. Uh, however, that's not how it worked 2,000 years ago. If you wanted to make a copy of something 2,000 years ago, you had to use your own God-given copy machine, which is your two hands, jazz hands, right? Uh, that's, that's all you had. And, and, and just to keep history in mind, because this is, affects our understanding a little bit, when did uh, Gutenberg invent the printing press? Does anyone remember their history? 14, 1440. You were close. 1440, Gutenberg invents the printing press in Europe. So until 1440, there wasn't even an option for making a copy in the way we think of it today. Everything had to be hand done. And even after 1440, it still took a while because that technology didn't just spread instantly overnight all across Europe and the known world. So you still have some time. This is why you see the hand copies kind of drop off after about 1500. But anything before 1440 had to be hand copied Can you imagine hand-copying the New Testament? When I was in uh, middle school, I got in trouble for something. I don't remember what. So I was given an in-home detention. And for us, in-home detention meant you were sent home with a copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and you had to come back the next day with like 10 or 12 handwritten pages of, of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I sat there that night and just, oh, it was miserable. I hated doing that. Can you imagine trying to do that because you wanted to with the scriptures? Can you imagine just hand-copying the Gospel of Mark? How long do you think it would take you to hand-copy the Gospel of Mark? It it would be crazy. And to make it even harder, these original New Testament manuscripts were most likely written in all caps with no punctuation between uh, words and no spaces between words as well. Here's an example of what that would have looked like. I put this up earlier. So so they didn't, they were very careful about trying to use every last (laughs) inch of space on their writing documents because writing paper was very expensive. So no spaces, no breaks, nothing like that. You just use every last space. And, And can you imagine copying this? And this is neatly typed. Imagine if you had to read somebody else's handwriting as you're doing that as well. How'd you like to spend your entire day doing that. Well, as you think about it, do you think it would be possible for you to accidentally make a mistake as you were making a copy here? Yeah. Uh, Of course, it'd be very possible. We see this in the copies of the New Testament that we have now. Now, now before I go on, let me clarify two things for you. Number one, did you know that of the 6,000 Greek copies we have of the New Testament, we have about 99% accuracy or similarity between those copies? That's really astounding, particularly when you consider how many copies there are, how many different people copied them, and the vast amount of time and geography between the copies. I mean you could have someone in the year 200 in Greece and someone in the year 1400 in Egypt copying and they're almost 99 percent the same. It's really quite astounding. Number two, even when we talk about a mistake or a difference in a copy, you need to understand very very clearly this morning that we're not talking about a mistake or a difference in the scriptures themselves, okay? Is that very clear? An error in a copy does not equal an error in the scriptures. You see, because we have so many copies, and because they are in such incredible agreement, a mistake or an error in one copy does not affect our understanding of the whole. Here's another little illustration. Imagine that I asked you to leave the building today. I said, go home, I've got a project for you, we're going to do a little experiment. So after you leave... I give uh, pieces of paper to everyone else who's sitting in the room, We've probably got about 150 or so in here I'd say right now, so 150 copyists, and over the next hour, I read you a story. And your mission as I'm reading you the story is to write down everything I say. So you're going to sit here and you're going to write, okay? Every word that I say, write it down. When we're all done, I collect them, and I go back to the person who you, who I sent home, and I say, now look at these 150 copies and tell me what the original story said, Well, if as you're looking at that, you come across one copy where someone missed a word. Would that in any way throw you off as to what the original said? No, because you would be able to see from the other 149 copies that it was there. So clearly someone just, oops, they made a mistake. They misspelled something. They skipped something, et cetera. It wouldn't throw you off even though it's different from the others. And this is the same issue we have here. Just because a single copy might say something different in a place doesn't throw us off what the original said of the scriptures because we have all of these copies to look at. The scriptures are inerrant. There may be differences in copies, but there are no errors or differences in the scriptures themselves, but we may find mistakes in individual copies. Now, what kind of mistakes do we find? If I could, I would uh, put them into three basic categories for you. First, we would have what we call unintentional differences. Unintentional differences. The big one here is misspellings, by far. You know, you meant to write Jesus Christ, instead you wrote Jesus Chris. It happens. We do it today. We do it today. We've done it on order of worships. We've done it on slides. People misspell things. And as you look at the differences in copies, the vast, vast, vast majority of the differences are misspellings. Uh, Another very common one is word order differences. Someone meant to put Jesus Christ, but they put Christ Jesus instead. Doesn't change anything. Particularly in Greek, this is uh, confusing for us because English is such a word order dependent language. If I start throwing my words out of order, I sound like Yoda and we all laugh. But, but in Greek, it's not like that at all. They're not dependent on word order. You can put words in any order you want. And the sentence means exactly the same thing. So as you're writing, you realize you, oh, I've skipped a word. You can add it in makes no change at all to the original meaning. That's weird until you can understand. Another very common unintentional uh, difference you see in the copies would be skipping lines or words accidentally. So made a little example here. Let's say you're copying uh, this document behind me and you got to this line right here that ends with a delta. And the phone rings or the baby cries, and now you gotta get up and you gotta go take care of something. And you come back and you're like, okay, where did I leave off? I left off at a delta. Oh look, there's a delta. And you start writing from right there. Well, the problem is is that if you're not careful, you might forget that there was an entire line in between the two. Very easy to do when you're copying something. (laughs) Very easy to do. And you see examples of this. And these are always easy to tell because typically these kinds of, of omissions, they don't make any sense. You can tell someone left off and picked up at something that was similar and whatever was in between got missed. Again, these are unintentional differences that we make in our own writing every single day. The second category I would refer to as being uncertain differences. These would be times that we see words or lines missing where kind of does make sense when they're gone and could be that the person purposely removed them, but we're not sure that happens. The third category would be intentional differences, which are clear attempts, very clear attempts attempts to remove or to alter the text. And there are examples of that where people looked at the scriptures and were like, I don't like this. I don't like what's written here. I'm going to change it. And on their copy, they changed it. (laughs) Uh, Thomas Jefferson did this in our own history, right? If you know anything about American history, he took his Bible and a penknife, and he went through and he removed every portion that he didn't agree with. People have been doing that for years. It's nothing new. Or sometimes people saw, hey, I think a little more information is needed here. I'll add to the text. And so they added to it as well. Again, these are the kinds of differences we see. Does does all that make sense? And none of this confuses us. When you sit down and you compare all of these things, it's clear to recognize when this kind of stuff is happening. So there's no sense in which it tricks us or or causes us difficulty. God's word has been preserved for us in all of these copies so that we can be certain that what we hold in our hands is, in fact, God's very word. Now, last step, before we fully and finally answer the very first question, we we need to understand how... um, Well, one more thing. Let's uh, review where we're at one more time. New Testament's written in Greek. You're reading a translation. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. We do have lots and lots of copies, but all of these copies are not identical. So how do you get from all of those different copies down to one Greek text from which we can translate into English so we can read God's word for ourselves? Think about this for a moment. If we had 6,000 copies of something in front of us, someone is going to have to sit down and compare all 6,000 copies to each other and make notes of this process in order to come up with one single document. That, folks, is a monumental task. And incredibly intelligent people spend their entire lives doing nothing but this you think your job is tough (laughs) imagine imagine you sit down at your desk and here's your first day at work okay here's copy a look at copy a and you sit there and you're like okay all the way through and they're like okay great now here's copy b go letter by letter and find if there are any differences Imagine if that's your job and you get done with that one and then copy C is given to you. And now you have to compare copy C to copy A and copy C to copy B, okay? So next time you complain about your job, remember, (laughs) there are worse options out there. Look, I'm thankful for the people. People, again, have given their entire lives to doing nothing but what I am describing for you right now. And so it's a monumental task. When when I say to you that we have 6,000 Greek uh, copies of the Greek New Testament available to us. I hope you understand they've not all been available at the same time. Like from day one, they they, they weren't all written at the same time. They weren't all found at the same time. These things have been found for for years. Researchers and archaeologists continue to find more and more copies every single year. In fact, some of the best copies we have have only been found in the past 200 years. In fact, there's a um, you're gonna like cringe when you hear this story, but the probably one of the best copies we have was found. Uh, in and around the region of Sinai, a researcher, a a guy who was just passionate about looking for these things was at a monastery. This is like 1860, 1880 timeframe. He's at a monastery and he's looking around the monastery and he notices a trash can basically with paper in it that they were throwing in the fire to heat the monastery. He goes and looks in the trash can and it's one of the oldest copies of the Greek New Testament that we have today. And you're like, what else did they burn? Like, what, else? what happened before he got there? He saves this, and this becomes one of the best, oldest, and most complete copies of the New Testament that we have available today. And that was just 1860, 1880 time frame. I mean, they're, they're constantly finding new and new, uh, more and more things. On top of that, until modern times, no one has had the ability to go and look at all of them and compare them to one another. So, so for example, here's another little uh, illustration for you to put yourself into for a moment. Let's let's play out a scenario. Imagine uh, you live in Italy. It is the year 1500. And because the printing press has been invented, you decide that you want to be the very first person to put together a Greek New Testament. You want to find every copy you're aware of. You want to compare them all. You want to print one. Except for there's one problem, okay? It's the year 1500. And in the year 1500, only 1,000 copies have been found total at this point. And of those 1,000, you only know about 20 of them. That's it. 20 of them in the entire world you're aware of. You don't know anything about the 290 in Greece. You don't know about the 240 in Alexandria. You don't know about the 450 that are in and around the area of Israel. All you have access to and all you know about are 20 copies there in Italy what's your problem gonna be here? You don't have a lot of material to work with. You can take the 20 that you know about and compare them, but you're missing a whole lot of stuff, are you not? Now, do the scenario again, but change it to today. Because it's the year 2016, you've got 6,000 copies available, and of those 6,000, 4,000 are viewable in PDF from anywhere in the world, and the other 2,000 are cataloged, listed, Archived in museums and universities, and you can get on a plane and go see every single one of them if you want. Of these two people, you in 1500 or you today, who's going to have an easier time putting together a complete and accurate New Testament? The guy today, obviously. Which finally now brings us to the second question What in the world is going on here in Mark 16? Now that you got that background, What the translators are telling us here in Mark is that his gospel should end at verse 8, which means we finish Mark on Easter Sunday, surprise, and the verses 9 to 20 are not a part of his original text. Well, if those verses are not a part of Mark's original text, why are they here, and why have they been in English Bibles for a really long time? Well, those are excellent questions. Let's answer those two questions in reverse order. First... Why have these verses been included in English Bibles for a really long time? But now we're saying they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Well, the answer to that is very, very simple. It's because of what I explained to you a few moments ago. Let me show you two different Greek New Testaments, okay? You can look at them later if you want. This one here, the blue one, is called the Texas Receptus, which is a Latin term for means received text. It's just this name. It doesn't actually have a real name, but that's the name we've given to it. And this red one here is the United Bible Society's fourth edition Greek New Testament. Uh, They actually have a fifth edition today, but I don't have that one. I have the fourth one. Question is, how can I have two different Greek New Testaments here? Well, remember that little hypothetical scenario I gave you a few moments ago about the guy in 1500 and the guy today trying to put together a Greek New Testament? Surprise, it wasn't hypothetical. That was actually a true story by and large. Let me introduce you to the guy who put together this Greek New Testament. His name is Erasmus, or was Erasmus. Erasmus lived uh, from 1466 to 1536. He was a Catholic priest. He He was a scholar. He was an incredibly intelligent man. And he wanted to be the very first person ever to publish, compile and publish a Greek New Testament. No one had ever done it before because there was no printing press before that, so he wants to be the very first one. However, he is in a race against a group of guys somewhere else who are trying to do the very same thing. So in order to beat them, Erasmus makes two important decisions. One, he takes every Greek uh, manuscript or copy that he has available to him, which at that moment was five. He takes all five of them, he compares them to each other, he puts together a text, he realizes he's missing complete portions of the New Testament, so he goes and takes the Latin Vulgate, and he copies that back into Greek and says, ha, that was God's word, and he prints it. That's the first edition of, the, of this book. This is not the first edition, by the way, of that book. This is just a copy, all right? And you hear that, and you're like, man, that terrible. <laughs> that's terrible. Like, that's terrible scholarship. How can he just make stuff up on top of that? God really must not have blessed that very much. You know, the funny thing is, is to the contrary, God blessed this tremendously. <laughs> Erasmus, I said to you, was a Catholic priest. He, he was an enemy of Martin Luther. He hated the Reformation. He hated everything it stood for, and Luther hated him back. The two of them had quite the, uh, the feud going. He had no intention of helping them. <laughs> he prints this book. Luther gets a hold of it, and this is the first time, the very first time that anyone, anyone outside of a very select few Catholic scholars had gotten to see Greek, a Greek copy of the New Testament. Prior to this, everything was done in the Latin Vulgate. No one could read the original, so whatever the Catholic Church wanted you to read in their Latin Bible, that's what you read. Erasmus comes and he undermines that, not intentionally, but he undermines it. He gives this to Luther and to everybody else, Luther takes this thing and devours it. Luther takes this thing and says, This is what God's word said. And then he did something that Rasmus never, ever, ever, ever intended. He translated this into German and he gave it to the German people. And you know what happened in Germany? Boom, Reformation. John Wycliffe takes the same book in England and he makes the very first English Bible. Boom, Reformation in England. So you can say, well, this book wasn't 100% accurate. He had five copies, and there's, I mean, I get that. God uses imperfect things all the time, and he used an imperfect thing here. In fact, every English Bible from the time this was made until about 60 years ago was based off of this. The King James Version, the one that had probably the biggest impact of any other Bible, really, in the history of, of modern English, based off this. So, so on the one hand, you have this. On the other hand, you have this one. So that one's, you know, 1,500. In the end, by the time he got to his final printing of this book, it had made it up to about 20 copies of, of, of the Greek New Testament that he had found. So that's where I got the 20 number from, Is about in that range. He had finally found the portions of the New Testament he was missing, and he <laughs> filled those in with the right stuff. So, so he had that. This is about 1520, 1530 by the time it gets to its final printing. Then on the other hand, you have this. United Bible Society started doing this work in 1960, 1950-something. And this is the fourth edition. The fifth edition just came out in 2014. Um, And this one, rather than being based on 20-some copies, is based on 6,000. This one was good, but for 450 years nobody really came back and tried to review this until this one came out. Which is why, for those of you who are old enough to remember such things, starting in the 1970s there was a plethora of of English translations that started being printed. The New International Version, the New American Standard, these were like earth shattering at the time in the 1970s. What, What are those being translated out of? This This is why those are being translated and printed then. Not this one anymore, this one, and this is why there were some differences in the two, and some people didn't like that. Even the English Standard Version we use today, it's based out of the the USB one, or UBS one, not the USB one. Plug that one in. (laughs) And so, why have these 12 verses been included in English Bibles for such a long time? It's because Erasmus included them here. That's it. You want to know how they got in and were there for so long? Because Erasmus put them in this one. And all the English, early English translations and most of the other ones were translated out of that one. And unfortunately, nobody really came back and updated that until, again, about the 1950s or 60s, not until the other one came along. And based on what we know now, we know those 12 verses shouldn't have been included in Erasmus' copy. So, so if they weren't originally there, why were they added uh, when... By who and where did the material that was added even come from? Well, as far as why they were added, I mean, we don't have like a document somewhere that says the following verses were added because of, like it's, that's not available to us. But I think that the reason why they were added is pretty clear. It's because people didn't like the abrupt ending of Mark's gospel. It just ends in verse 8. Boom. Done. And you might be reading that and scratching your head going, really? That's the ending? Yeah. Yeah. That's the ending. I'll talk more about that in a moment and then a lot more about it in two weeks. And so I think what people were trying to do was they were trying to help Mark by giving his gospel a better conclusion. This seems to be why they were added. As for when they were added, uh, it did not happen until sometime in the second century or after. You say, well, that's pretty early. Yeah, it's pretty early, but it's not early enough. See, it's it's not until the second century that you even begin to find any attempt to give Mark's gospel a better ending. And here's the big surprise. The one we read today, verses 9 to 20, is not the only possible ending. This one is referred to as the long ending, because it is the longest one. It's 12 verses long. There's also a short ending that was popular for a while. Uh, There was a, a group of copies that tried to take the long and the short and put them together. And then there are some miscellaneous endings completely different from both of those. So there's a number of uh, other options, but none of those endings appear in the earliest and best copies that we have, none of them. Not only that, but when you look at the church fathers and they're talking about Mark chapter 16, they quote it, they reference it, they never reference anything after verse 8, ever. Uh, they seem to think Mark ended at verse 8. Finally, it's interesting as you look in church history, even as you get into like the four and five hundreds there are people who are talking about the ending of Mark saying, yeah, there's these other endings, but the original didn't have that. These are people trying to help it. They reference the very issue that we're talking about today, even as early as the four and 500 AD period. So the evidence overwhelmingly tells us that Mark ended his gospel at verse 8 and that all the other endings were added sometime in the second century or after. Now, who added them? I don't know. Different people probably with the different endings added them. You say, well, how do you know for sure it wasn't Mark? Well, we know that because the vocabulary, the grammar, and the style of writing changes drastically in verse 9. You may not realize this, but you have 11 fingerprints, at least. You have 10 on your fingers and one in your mouth. The one in your mouth is your linguistic fingerprint. If we could spend enough time with each of you individually and listen to everything you say, read everything you write, we would pick up a certain vocabulary that you like to use a certain way of grammar that you like to put your sentences together, a style even of talking, of how you, how you communicate words that is unique to you. You have your own linguistic fingerprint. Well, guess what? Mark has a linguistic fingerprint. Mark likes to use certain vocabulary words that are unique to him. He puts them together in certain ways. The way he communicates style, his style is, is unique to him, and we've seen that through Mark's gospel. When you get to verses 9 to 20, every last bit of that changes. Every last bit of it. In just those 12 verses, there's like 20 new vocabulary words added that were never used anywhere else in Mark. The grammar all of a sudden completely changes. It doesn't even fit with what came before it in verse 8. It doesn't even connect. The style is completely different. And so it tells us that whoever wrote it, it's not Mark because it's not his fingerprint. Finally, where then did the material in verses 9 to 20 come from? Well, that's a really interesting question because every single thing in verses 9 to 20, except for one, is clearly taken from the other Gospels or the book of Acts. So so just look at Mark 16 verses 9 to 20 for a moment. You see here in verse 9 about Jesus appearing first to Mary Magdalene? That's taken from John chapter 20 verses 11 to 18. Uh, also in verse 9, there's this completely weird reference to her having had seven demons cast out of her. That's Luke chapter 8 verse 2. In verses 12 to 13, he talks about Jesus appearing to the two who are walking out into the country. These are the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. In in verse 15, you see a great commission given that's very similar to Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. In verse 17, there's a reference to casting out demons. That happens repeatedly in the book of Acts. Also speaking in tongues repeatedly in the book of Acts. Picking up serpents with their hands is likely a reference to that time in Acts 28 when Paul, after he's shipwrecked, is grabbing sticks and putting them in the fire and a viper jumps out and bites him and he just shakes it off and everybody's waiting for him to die, but he doesn't because God protects him, okay? Acts 28, verses one to six. And then drinking poison I can't help you with. <laughs> that's, that's nowhere else. So there, some people like wonder, is it a reference? Jesus made a comment about uh, stepping on scorpions, but that, that would be a real stretch. I don't know where that one came from. Re- regardless, as you can see, it's as if someone looked at Mark and like, yeah, this isn't really good. We could help them. What else is out there? <laughs> uh, take that and that and that and then compile it and summarize it. And Okay, now that sounds much better. That fits with everything else that we see throughout the other gospels in the book of Acts. Ha, <laughs> we've improved it. So long story short, here we are today in any Bible translation that is based on this has those verses normally without any reference to it being an issue. If you have a King James or a New King James, very likely, yours will not tell you there's an issue here. If you have any translation that's based on this, they either will not have the verses, or if they do choose to include them, because this is by far the biggest example, there's nothing else in the rest of your New Testament as big as this one. No, not even close. If they do choose to include it, they'll do what the ESV did, but give you a note... Put it in brackets, try to make it very, very clear that they do not think it was originally there so that you are not confused by that. Final question then, what does all of this do to our faith? Well, uh, I think it should strengthen it. And I'm not just saying that. I really, really think that it should. And I'll give you four reasons why I think it should strengthen our faith. First, our little exercise this morning should remind us of what an incredibly sovereign And powerful God we serve. I mean, I'm just amazed to think through when I get down into the weeds of this, because I've tried to simplify this tremendously for your, I hope that makes sense. This is a very complex and difficult subject, but when I get down into those weeds and realize what God has done, he has amazingly, overwhelmingly, convincingly preserved his word for us. There's no confusion in the end. Things may come up like this where we see examples of failures from other people in the past, but as I look at the overall picture, I step back and get this high-level view, I'm just amazed at God's providential preservation of his word. People have tried to destroy the scriptures. They've tried to alter it, and yet it has remained and flourished and spread around the world. God's the one who does that, not man. Second, our little exercise this morning should remind us that God's word is inerrant. Man can make mistakes, God never makes mistakes. Erasmus can make a mistake. Man, God doesn't make a mistake. Individual copyists can make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. So as we think about this, it reminds us that this idea of inerrancy, this idea of the, of the certainty we can have in God's word, it is rooted in God and not man. I'm tr- I can trust what God has told me, that it is true without a doubt. What God gives us never causes a problem. Man can cause problems but God never causes a problem with his word. His word is true and trustworthy always. Third, our little exercise this morning should remind us that God's word is sufficient. You see, verses nine to 20 were added because people thought that what Mark had written was not enough. They thought it wasn't enough. They didn't think that what God had written through Mark was sufficient, but as you're gonna see in two weeks, Mark's ending in verse eight is actually quite powerful. When you begin to understand what Mark, I think Mark is doing with the way he ends his gospel, I think it is quite powerful. It was more than enough, and we call this the sufficiency of Scripture. That God has given us exactly what we need to know, nothing more, nothing less. This is why I ask people why do we have 66 books in the Bible, not 65 or 67? It's because He gave us exactly what we needed, nothing more nothing less. And by the time we conclude Mark here in two weeks, I think you will see that for yourselves. And then finally, our little exercise this morning has reminded us that God always works in spite of man, not because of him. You know what I love most in this whole story? And we've covered a whole lot of ground. I hope I have not left anyone in, in the dust here, but the thing I love most in this whole story is this. And I know that may seem weird to you, but I love the fact that God took something that was not 100% ideal and used it to blow this world up. I love that idea. Erasmus, a guy who hated everything the Reformation stood for, who was fighting against it once it got started. God uses that guy and the thing he puts together to blow this world up. Do you realize, humanly speaking, we would not be sitting in this room this morning apart from this? We wouldn't be here, humanly speaking. I'm taking God's sovereignty out of that just for a moment. But humanly speaking, we would not be in this room this morning if not for this right here. The power of God's word is not limited by man's failures ever, ever. Man may not get things 100% right. It doesn't limit God's word. And that's really encouraging to me because are we a perfect church? Nope. Can God still use us? Absolutely. Are we perfect believers? Nope. Nope. Can God still use us? Absolutely. When you are talking with people about the gospel, or you're just trying to encourage someone from the scriptures, do you always say everything right and get every detail of biblical truth accurate? Nope. But can God still use his word powerfully even through imperfect vessels? Absolutely. And that is the thing that encourages me. The fact that that God works in spite of man and through broken men. He doesn't work because... Do you understand that distinction? In spite of, not because. And so as we go out of here today, we're reminded that all flesh is as grass. The words I say to you today, they pass away. The words of God, though, never fade. They never change. They are perfect and certain forever. let you me bow your heads in prayer? Father, this has been a, an odd time together, I know, but I pray that you will use it. My words are nothing. The words of man are always nothing. They, they pass away like petals on a flower. But your word is certain. Your word never changes. Your word remains constant and true. And you work through your word because it is powerful. The Spirit takes it and does things with it that nobody ever understands. And so I pray that even in our time together this morning that you will Use that truth, <laughs> these concepts we've talked about, biblical truths, and, and encourage our hearts with those ideas. Help us to have our eyes always looking back to you. Sometimes we don't know what to do with things. Sometimes we, we hit walls and we don't quite know how to get past them or understand them, but, but our eyes are on you. And so I pray that that would be true for us this morning as we walk out of here. In Jesus' name, amen.